Welcome to the first episode of Access, a four-part series brought to you by Volume and the Health Justice Initiative. My name is Fatima Hassan. This show aims to unpack the true cost of access to healthcare in the context of COVID-19. COVID-19 is an unprecedented public health crisis. In early March, the World Health Organization declared it a global pandemic, and by mid-March, South Africans went into a strict lockdown that has prioritized a scale-up in testing and screening. Our deaths may be just under 300 people as at mid-May, but in other countries, they've dealt with more than 50,000 people dying in each of their countries from COVID-19 within the space of just a few weeks. With infections and deaths increasing globally, the race is on to scale up affordable testing, to find an affordable vaccine, and to find affordable treatment. But given South Africa's own deadly HIV-AIDS past and the premature suffering and death caused by the lack of timely access to affordable and life-saving medication for people living with HIV-AIDS in South Africa then, we need to understand the issues that will help us to avoid making the same mistakes. The HIV-AIDS crisis and the deaths in South Africa then were preventable and access to medicines was a key barrier alongside state-sponsored denialism. So will our response to COVID-19 be any different? In today's episode, we discuss medicine access and the barriers that prevent poor and uninsured patients in developing countries from accessing life-saving medicines. We unpack what patterns mean for you as a healthcare user or a person who is ill. Many of you may not know, but if a person needs a medicine for a chronic condition, chances are it is being made by a company that has taken out a patent on it, allowing the company to charge a price that it deems reasonable as a reward for its innovation for a period of 20 years or even more without any competition. We look at how this patent regime can enable or block access to life-saving testing, vaccines, and treatment for COVID-19. We also consider why pricing and licensing matter, especially if the public has funded the research that gave rise to the innovation. In this episode, we are joined by three long-standing activists for affordable medicine access, and also my dear friends, Els Real, Tahir Amin, and Greg Gonzalez. Tahir is a lawyer specializing in intellectual property law and patent reform and is a co-founder and co-director of the organization called IMAC. Els is a veteran public health and access to medicines advocate and specialist who has worked with Medicines on Frontiers, Open Society Foundations and other organizations. Greg is a veteran HIV AIDS activist and now epidemiologist at Yale University School of Public Health and also a co-founder and co-director of the Global Health Justice Program. We have worked together for many years on strengthening access to medicines for HIV AIDS in the Global South. It's such a pleasure to have you all join me for this discussion. Welcome. Tahir, so what is intellectual property and what do patents have to do with medicine access? Intellectual property comprises of uh, things that you've probably heard of, for example, trademarks, which Coca-Cola, which is trademarked, 
you've got copyright. So when you read a book, it's usually got some copyright protection. And then you have patents, which is where you invent something. Uh, it could be uh, a sort of a, a new wheel. It could be medicines. It could be uh, uh, various things that are utilized and manufactured. And those are usually fall into the patent realm. And each of these aspects of intellectual property have periods of protection. Uh, when we talk about patents, typically they are given 20 years of exclusivity. So whoever invents something gets 20 years of exclusivity. And that means, as, as you said, Fatima, it means that nobody can else can make that particular thing or manufacture it, sell it, export it. Uh, and in the case of pharmaceuticals, that then um, allows, for example, pharmaceutical companies to uh, charge whatever price uh, they, they, they can uh, because uh, they're the only ones who actually make that product. It's largely um, evolved in the developed countries first. So South Africa has always had uh, intellectual property laws and particularly patents and patents on pharmaceutical products, which means actually the end product that's made is patented, whereas India only allowed patents on the process, for example, i.e. how you make the product, not the actual end product, which meant so many more other competitors could make the actual end product in different ways. Um, so this has grown uh, exponentially over the last 40 years. Uh, and uh, as a result, we've seen uh, a lot of consolidation of knowledge. And, and as a result of that, it means that medicine prices have been getting higher and higher because you have a, a select number of companies that are holding a hoard of patents on products for longer and longer and longer and well beyond the 20-year period. Uh, what, what companies typically do is that when they invent something, they will then uh, try to extract as many different types of patents on that particular product. So it's not just that you get one patent on a product. Usually, as we found in our work, uh, there could be over 100 patents on a particular product and all deliberately designed to prevent competition from happening. And of course, the longer a company can hold on to a patent, the more money it can make. And it can keep off competition because when competition comes in, the prices can drop by up to 80%. Where have we seen that happen? HIV was a, a huge moment in the access to medicine as well, which my, my colleagues can speak better about. Um, but uh, what we're seeing is we're seeing it in everyday drugs. We've seen it in, in South Africa in relation to cancer drugs. Uh, there's been a huge movement in South Africa to try and change the way the patent law works, uh, particularly in terms of bringing more public participation in order to bring better quality into the examination of patents because what pharmaceutical companies typically do is they say they're inventing something or use that what I call a throwaway term innovation and um, essentially uh, when you when you really break the science down behind it it's actually not really new it's something that already existed in public scientific literature and so what it what happens is there's this proprietization uh, where they can get away with it unless somebody's really doing the uh, so rigid checks and balances and unfortunately patent officers are under resourced to uh, actually um, really check every patent and I think South Africa doesn't even examine their patents uh, so when you apply for a patent you pretty much a rubber stamp system it just gets automatically granted what about in other countries um, you take the US patent office for example one of the biggest granters of patents and one of the biggest pushes of the intellectual property system is uh, it's all about uh, granting as many patents as possible. And the theory goes is that if you grant patents, people will invest. And so therefore, more development happens, more research happens. 
And there is some truth to that. But the, 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 the key is the patent system is really about inventions, not really reproprietizing knowledge that already exists. And I think we live in a society where uh, we use these terms like innovation all the time. And, you know, it's one particular, it's my bugbear is that I think we don't even know what innovation is anymore. It's just a buzzword that is used and policymakers use it, governments use it, say, oh, we want to grow our economy, we want to innovate. But as, as we do that, particularly in this, what I call the, the what, I, what I would call the sort of neoliberal economy, is it ends up in more privatization of knowledge because we're innovating. So, Els, I think Ty has made out a good case for why innovation doesn't necessarily translate into two things, competition in the market, but also uh, access for for poor people and users of the healthcare system. Can you take us through issues related to pricing and also what governments can do if in a context of patent protection, they unable to get a drug company to voluntarily agree to reduce or lower the price of an essential medicine? I graduated in the in the nineties as a as a biomedical researcher, and you know what? When we were doing our research, we were not thinking about patents at all. It was a totally foreign concept. I mean, uh, I grew up in a time where science was really still about freely exchanging uh, your your what you learned through publications and conferences, etc., and actually building upon the advances uh, of of others. Uh, it was not about trying to appropriate it, as Tahir was saying, that knowledge and then trying to commercialize it. Actually, most of public research was done in the public interest for the public good. And it's actually during the 90s that things uh, gradually started to change. But I want to highlight that to, to say that it it doesn't have to be that way. Actually, if you look at the the successes of the pharmaceutical industry, the 60s, 70s, 80s were quite uh, successful years in terms of biomedical innovation and new drugs that were developed, etc. That was before uh, all public uh, science uh, became, uh, let's say, privatized and commercialized uh, through the through the patent systems. And instead of biomedical research for new drugs, for new vaccines, for new diagnostics, being really oriented towards uh, improving health outcomes, improving people's health outcomes, and, and therefore addressing the most important or urgent health needs of the people, wherever they may be, it has become uh, a matter of commercial activity and where the research priorities were geared towards where there were market opportunities and market opportunities that came through uh, the fact that for medical innovations and new drugs and and vaccines and and diagnostics, high prices could be uh, demanded. And this is because of monopolies, right? And we have gone from health innovation, improving health outcomes, to something that is more about economic growth in GDP. What you have is that you have a lot of public investments in research all over the world and including in South Africa, there is a, a, a quite an, an, an active uh, uh, Ministry of Science and Technology that is investing in research efforts to address some of the health problems uh, South Africa is facing with. But it is always seen as a matter of economic activity where uh, the results of the medical research are being patented and then only gets their way to, uh, through the patients 
if it can be commercialized. And why, if I may play devil's advocate, is this a problem? Only health needs that our commercial opportunities are being addressed. And we see we have a whole range of neglected diseases or neglected populations that are, let's say, too poor to provide or to, to represent an, a, a good market for uh, companies whose health needs are generally uh, neglected. And then, of course, if we want to jump immediately to uh, outbreak diseases such as COVID, uh, anything that is an outbreak uh, disease uh, that doesn't do not represent a market are generally uh, largely neglected by, uh, by companies. So if you are a minister of health or a president and you're dealing with a uh, outbreak of a disease like COVID-19 and there is a company that uh, manages to get a patent on, let's just say, a vaccine, for example, or a treatment for COVID, how would you make sure in the absence of goodwill of that particular drug company that you can have as many people get access to that vaccine or treatment? A government has national authority over which uh, patents they, uh, they they give out or not. A patent is not a, a God-given right. A patent is a policy tool. So if the company applies in South Africa for a patent, there can be a, an examination as to whether, yes or no, it is deemed uh, deserved to issue that patent. And it could be because either the science and technology are not really new or innovative, or uh, uh, governments can also decide that certain uh, inventions are too important, uh, for instance, for public health to uh, issue a patent. So that's the first thing, the, the question of whether a patent is even granted for a certain invention. If a patent is granted and the company is not willing to uh, issue a voluntary license or allow anyone else to produce that uh, that product at an affordable price, uh, governments have the right to actually uh, use what they say a compulsory license and actually uh, oblige the company to allow uh, other uh, producers, be it. Uh, in the country or uh, elsewhere uh, to produce that that uh, that product and import it in the country. Craig, I mean, I think you probably have more experience than most people in dealing with the conduct of pharmaceutical companies and governments that were in cahoots with with the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, Tahir talked about profits over people. Can you maybe unpack that for us in relation to the HIV AIDS struggle uh, around the world for people to be able to access affordable, life-saving medicines? Hey, Fatima, thanks for having me. So close to 30 years ago, uh, a drug that wasn't very good, um, but it was something came on the market to, to fight HIV. It was called AZT, Zydovidine. Um, it was a marginally useful drug at best, but it was priced then at what the New York Times called the highest price for a drug ever uh, uh, in the United States. It was $8,000 um, for a year's course of the drug. Um, and ACT UP New York, uh, which I was a part of, um, one of its earliest actions was to uh, go after the drug company in several ways. One was to go into the floor of New York Stock Exchange with fake dollar bills, throw them off the balcony, screaming, sell welcome, which is the company Burr's welcome that made the drug. 
Um, and my colleague, Peter Staley, um, took a bunch of power tools and steel plating down to North Carolina and barricaded himself in the office of the CEO. Um, the price dropped precipitously uh, several weeks later. Um, so drug companies have been profiting uh, off of, of epidemic diseases um, uh, since the beginning of the epidemic. Uh, and, you know, it's no coincidence that uh, Anthony Fauci, who's the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases here in the United States, called uh, uh, remdesivir, the new drug for, for COVID-19, uh, uh, like AZT was in the 1980s. That's a fascinating comparison. For many years, we didn't have uh, very good drugs at all to treat HIV infection. In 1996, um, there was a breakthrough. And we now had drugs which made uh, HIV a chronic manageable illness. Um, I myself started taking those drugs right around that time. Um, but what people were noticing all over the world was that all this great news that was happening in the United States and Western Europe and Australia, Japan and other places in the global north was not uh, transferring down to, to, to other countries uh, who had AIDS epidemics of their own. Um, and there were certain countries like India, Brazil and Thailand who took matters into their own hands. Um, Brazil and, and Thailand uh, embarking upon their own antiretroviral therapy programs. Um, you know, Tahir and Els can talk about the details of how they did that in, in regard to the patent law. But basically, they made generic versions of the AIDS drugs that were tens of thousands of dollars in the United States and Europe in order to, 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 to help treat the millions of patients uh, that were relying on them for these, for these medicines. Um, as you know, the fight came to South Africa. Um, which you and I and a whole bunch of others were involved with. The main goal around these fights was that you needed to force competition. You had to break the break the patent monopoly in some way uh, of these drugs to make it available to, to, to more people. So maybe, Craig, if you could just take us through the pharmaceutical industry and the lobby that operates both in D.C. and I think in other parts of the world. And some of the strategies that people living with HIV AIDS and other social movements have used to try and encourage transparency and to try and encourage different type of conduct from these very pharmaceutical companies that basically determine not just price, but whether also patients will, will be able to live or whether they'll be, they'll be able to die. So the pharmaceutical industry has the largest lobby in Washington, D.C. in the United States. So our own homegrown attempts to, to manage drug prices uh, here in the United States has been uh, a failed effort year after year after year because, um, frankly, too many people are on the take from pharma on Capitol Hill and in, in, in our executive branch in the White House to, make, uh, to get the companies to make um, legislative concessions to, to make drugs more affordable. Um, this hasn't stopped activists. As I said, in the, in the late 80s, activists were taking direct action to force the hand of, of Burr's welcome on the price of AZT. Uh, and it, it, the, the same sort of strategies of direct action uh, and protest uh, lasted throughout the first generation of antiretrovirals or nucleoside analogs uh, with protests you know, week after week, month after month as new drugs came on, online. I think it became a global protest movement post-1996 when we had drugs that were really uh, game changers in the in the fight against AIDS and the treatment action campaign in your own country of South Africa, uh, Grupo Pelavida in Brazil, the, the the Thai treatment action group and the Thai drug users network in Thailand. But there's been a uh, an explosion in activism around HIV, which is really about um, access to medicines. We've also had help from scientists like Andrew Hill and others who have helped us understand how much these drugs cost to make, 
Um, many of these drugs are not uh, 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 super expensive to manufacture, uh, and and the markup on them is considerable. Um, and it just, you know, I think the main point to also understand here, it's not just about HIV, it's about hepatitis C. Uh, it's about a whole range of drugs in which the companies are pricing drugs at the point to which the market will bear it rather than what the, the, the rational or the, the fair price for it is. Tyre, if we could turn to you, could you take us through two very different issues? The one is the role of public funding and university support in the development of drugs. And then secondly, you know, could you take us through the current developments around Gilead uh, in relation to COVID-19? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think um, there's been some fantastic work done by a number of academics and Els herself has done some stuff on this, uh, as have others, on really exposing the extent of uh, government funding that goes into a lot of products we see on the market today that are sold uh, as, as private goods by uh, the industry. Um, now, the, U the US uh, is a huge funder of the National Institutes of Health of uh, a lot of research. I think they spend up to $40 billion towards a lot of um, R&D. Um, and, and usually what happens is governments generally fund a lot of what we call, in, in science speak, uh, basic research, which is like the initial sort of groundbreaking breaking research. And then what happens typically is, is then um, they may enter into some kind of public-private partnership or what has evolved over the last 40 years, at least in the United States, and I think this has started to spread in other countries, is we had the creation of uh, was a particular act called the Bayh-Dole Act, which was uh, allowing uh, universities to uh, basically get government funding. And universities essentially were doing this research with government funding and essentially became sort of economic engines and it goes back to Elsa's point about economic growth. Uh, uh, a lot of the science industry has become about economic growth rather than actually just real solid, you know, sort of research, pure research. And universities then then spin off into companies. And then with that money, uh, a lot of scientists then become billionaires. Can you give us an example of this? Uh, a lot of the work uh, for the new hepatitis C drugs uh, that, that started out costing uh, thousands and thousands of dollars uh, were actually spun out of uh, a lot of initial research from universities with public funding. And uh, it, what happens is, is, is that we've, we've ended up with a system where universities were used to be the centers of pure knowledge and research uh, that was available as public good has largely been privatized. And um, this has, has caused, and then uni uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies have associated themselves with these universities and essentially brought them into their kind of... Uh, way of thinking. And so we, we now have a, a system which is entirely co-opted by private interests, uh, but paid for by public funding. And we are seeing this in not only in COVID now, but this has been going on for, for a number of years. I mean, just take a drug like Lyrica, which is a Pfizer drug, um, and it's, it's the pain relief, you know, the muscle pain. That was started at, uh, as, a, as a research at Northwestern University. And it was, I think there was an NIH grant of about $680,000. It led to the, the base, the compound, which was then used in the end product Lyrica. The Northwestern University then had a license agreement with uh, Pfizer, and Pfizer would pay them royalties uh, on that drug. But at that point, it, uh, all, the, all the power uh, rested in Pfizer in terms of what it did with the product. Um, and it's interesting to see that uh, the amount of royalties that uh, um, Pfizer paid back to Northwestern actually covered an entire endowment for a year for 
Northwestern University. So the universities have bought into this, and as a result, they may potentially make some profit. Some some may argue that's great. You know, it's it's, it's growing the economy. It's it's making the people wealthy, but ultimately, it's done on the back of public taxpayer dollars. And when we look at what's happened with Gilead now, with the remdesivir, which is the only current treatment we have, uh, as and we don't even know how really effective it is. Uh, that was uh, supposedly funded by, I mean, by, by by various estimates, and we don't even have full transparency. Uh, at least uh, eighty million dollars from uh, NIH funding—that's public funding—and uh, yet Gilead now has full control of that. And if you look at the development of that product, it started uh, back uh, <clears throat> when uh, there was the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, and most of the initial research was actually done with U.S. military. Uh, funding. Um, and then further research was done on uh, the uh, various influ- uh, various uh, respiratory diseases, SARS, which were kind of uh, a coronavirus too, MERS, and that was all done collaboratively with universities, but with public funding. And so you have to ask the question, what was Gilead doing, um, uh, you know, sort of in, in, the, in the meantime? It wasn't really investing its own dollars, other than actually waiting for results from universities that had received NIH funding. And then all of a sudden, we, we have this pandemic outbreak, and now Gilead's all, all of a sudden interested and uh, uh, potentially could profit out of this moment, even though it's saying it's donating uh, sort of all the doses that it has at the moment. But if, if this becomes a standard treatment down the road, and we all, I think for those of, for those of us who work in health, uh, understand that this, uh, pa- this, this coronavirus is not going away, uh, until a vaccine arrives, Gilead could stand to make a significant amount of money. And um, despite it licensing to uh, a, a number of developing countries, uh, they, ta- they they stand to hold uh, the mar- the richer markets for themselves. And I think there's a fundamentally broken system where you know people talk about free markets. There is really no such thing as a free market. It's it's this illusion that there's no such, there's no state intervention, and it's, oh. it's the biggest con, if you want to ask me. That has ever been played in uh, uh, on the public. The idea that you have these these uh, folk who sort of say defenders of the free market, because we saw that we're seeing that in COVID all over. All of a sudden, you know, the free market is going to save us. Uh, but there's billions of dollars being pumped into uh, these companies to develop uh, a number of COVID treatments. What were they doing before that? Um, and so, I think these are the questions we really need to ask of our economic systems, mm. and, and 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 who gets the who gets the gains and who gets the benefits, and who gets to set the prices. Um, I think uh, I'm not going to entirely blame the pharmaceutical companies. I think they are the symptom of the actual cause, and the cause is the economic system that we've been driving for the last forty years. Mm. I think for a long time, you know, it's been it's been it's been a, you know we have to challenge the players. The players also help create the system, but if you look at the incentive that gets set. They're set by governments. They set get they're set by a economic agenda, particularly the Western countries, because they want to keep, you know, hegemony. They want to keep power. They want to keep control, and it's all about resources. Uh, and and so we're gonna. It's gonna be interesting to see what happens in the, in this moment with COVID, because let's say for example China comes up with a vaccine first. What's going to happen then? Um, and and so you know the U.S. has been the ultimate promoter of the current agenda. Uh, and it continues mm. to do so, but all you know, and it's actually pushed an agenda that China has now adopted. So now, in reverse, China might do the same. So we really have to look at the origins of all this, and uh, what are we, what have we been driving towards? And have we really sort of got to the edge of the cliff and about to drive ourselves off it? 
uh, or we're going to rescue ourselves and turn back. So wait, let me let me get this clear. In the middle of a global pandemic that is considered to be unprecedented, um, Gilead still has the authority and control to decide who gets licenses, who doesn't get licenses, and whether they will give up full exclusivity or not. Yes, unless unless the U.S. government or any other government uh, uh, steps in, as as Els alluded, uh, mentioned, you know, and issues what we call a compulsory license, which every national government has the right to do. Um, they can actually override any patent right and say, you know what, we're going to uh, we're going to uh, allow others to produce this particular product because it's in the national interest, it's a public emergency, and um, you you will get a reasonable you know royalty, whatever that is. Um, yeah. That but that the governments have to intervene. It's not just it's not just going to happen at this moment in time. Gilead is controlling, or you know has control of all the strings. Um, and essentially, when you think about it, as as Al's mentioned with voluntary licenses, they are essentially that they're just voluntary. And we've seen that in the HIV space, in the hepatitis mm. C space, is that uh, Gilead has become very artful in managing the competition. It knows where to slice the pie because it knows where its profits lie. It knows where it can actually maximize. So, Els, if I could ask you to explain to us what is supposed to be the role of the World Trade Organization and the current developments there, uh, because in the absence of a functional WTO, uh, maybe explain to our listeners where governments or the public or patients can actually turn to. Maybe I'm too optimistic, but if you listen to uh, the discourse today of uh, you know governments who've always, as as was explained by Tahir and and uh, Greg, uh, been uh, very much sided with uh, corporate interests uh, for a variety of reasons, including because there was a lot of lobby money. Uh, being thrown at them, uh, in particular in the U.S., things are changing. I mean, I have been baffled uh, by the discourse that we've been hearing from, uh, you know, world leaders in, in in Germany, in France, in Canada, in New Zealand, for that matter. But of course, and uh, where we have different dynamics going on, and again, we're talking power. Uh, dynamics already. In fact, last year with the World Health Assembly, it's exactly a year ago, uh, there was a very interesting change uh, and shift in the power dynamics where you had a number of countries from different continents, not the usual suspects uh, where it was uh, developing countries trying to uh, make progress on affordable access to medicines, but there was a transparency resolution demanding transparency on uh, the cost structure, uh, the pricing uh, also on clinical trial data, on patents, etc. And it was a coalition of countries with a few European countries and a few African countries, Latin American countries, Asian countries, that all kind of came together around the need for a dramatic reform of the way in which we actually negotiate with pharma. Because if you do not have the data about how much money has actually been invested, how uh, is a price actually being constructed, what is a fair price for that matter, if you don't have even access to the data that are supposedly showing the uh, safety and efficacy of the products that are being marketed. Uh, all of that 
uh, it puts governments at a very weak position. It's like they are blindfolded and with their hands tied with the, behind their back when they are negotiating with, with pharma. And so that transparency resolution of last year uh, was a very important, I think, um, uh, transgressive step. Uh, but in particular, because it was not the, the developing countries against uh, the wealthy countries who sided with our pharmaceutical industry. No, it was a mix because the problem of affordable access had already become global. Now, if we listen to the discourse in COVID, I mean, you have uh, developed uh, wealthy countries talking about the vaccine needs to be available as a global public good. We've never heard that language before coming from wealthy governments. And I think that's, that's such an important point that there is an unprecedented uh, demand coming from leaders in the European Union that we have never seen before, particularly in relation to the drug company called Sanofi, uh, which is linked to the potential vaccine development. What we're hearing now is that, you know, there's 90 vaccines in development for, for COVID-19. Um, it's unprecedented sort of rush to develop these new tools, but everybody knows that even if we are successful in finding a vaccine, which is a big if, uh, remember, we don't have an HIV vaccine 40 years later, um, the question of access is going to be um, incredibly acute um, for all over the world. And I think this is why you're hearing sort of broad talk about the people's vaccine and access, because it's going to be a global phenomenon. There's not going to be enough to go around uh, anywhere on the planet. And we're going to have to figure out new ways of of making access uh, an international phenomenon rather than think about these things uh, in the context of uh, global inequities, but uh, think about as, as a sort of revisioning of how we think about essential medical products uh, the world over. I, I agree completely, with it, uh, Greg. Uh, the question is, is, is uh, who gets it first? Um, and obviously, uh, we're already seeing countries using the nationalist rhetoric uh, to protect their own first and not make it uh, a sort of a global effort. We've seen, we've seen some great collaboration that's gone on in this, in uh, more than ever amongst even companies. But the question really that's going to be what we're all looking for is whether uh, companies are going to actually make this available, not to the highest bidder, but to uh, on hum, you know, humanist principles. Uh, I think that's that's something that we have mm. to watch out for because uh, inevitably we've already seen that with. The, you know, the personal protective equipment where shipments were being uh, sort of siphoned off and, and, and diverted to other places because of highest bidders. Uh, is that going to happen with vaccines? So Sanofi, the company, has been in the news recently. Els, could you share with our listeners why that is? But so Sanofi, typically uh, seen as a, as, a, as a French company, who uh, has uh, made a deal with the U.S. Uh, government, I think it was Barda, who has been, you know, uh, uh, making agreements and uh, pretty big investments with a number of vaccine companies, and where uh, then suddenly the, the, the word got out that that meant that actually Sanofi would, if their vaccine would be successful, and there is a lot of ifs there, <laughs> there's a lot of hubris about uh, all the companies saying that they will have a vaccine available uh, anytime soon, but if the Sanofi would have a vaccine, that that would mean that their first supply would be to the US, and of course Sanofi, who has 
always been benefiting from a lot of support from the French government. The French uh, were not amused, uh, uh, to say that lightly. And so there's been a lot of back and forth, probably a lot behind uh, the scenes. Uh, to conclude now that uh, Sanofi has admitted, uh, the last I read about it, uh, or has, has committed to um, uh, offer the first 30 million vaccines uh, to France and the next 70 million to the US and the world, or some vague statement. Now, as, as Tahir pointed out, I mean, this whole uh, allocation of vaccines to the highest bidder uh, will, uh, if, if this is how things will play out, it will be extremely ugly. I mean, the only thing I would add is that COVID-19 has exposed the weakness in our sort of profit-driven monopoly-dominated um, uh, health system. And it's not just about the pills and the drugs. It's about the vaccines. And as Elsa said, it's about the diagnostics, but it's about things as, as um, simple and, and sort of forgettable as, as vials for uh, collecting patient samples, about the long-stemmed uh, uh, Q-tips or cotton swabs that we use to to retrieve nasopharyngeal samples. Um, it's all sort of controlled by these single companies, whether it's in the United States or Italy or other places around the world, um, and it's untenable in the context of a global health crisis. Um, I think what you know what we don't understand is that uh, these these crises happen on a day-to-day -day basis in local communities uh, in South Africa, uh, where access to these basic medical supplies let alone the, the COVID vaccine when it comes out, uh, unreachable uh, for them on a, on a daily basis. Thank you so much, Els, Tahir, Greg. I really appreciate it. It's been absolutely fascinating getting your input and listening to your expert views. The most important issues that you've highlighted for us in this unprecedented global crisis is solidarity, human empathy, and the ability of the public and civil society to keep vested interests and the pharmaceutical monopolies, as well as our own government, to account by insisting on transparency and full disclosure. Thank you for joining us on Access. Remember to follow us on Twitter, at HealthJusticeIn. I'm Fatima Hassan, and remember to tune in next week for episode two. This episode was brought to you by Volume. Goodbye. Volume.